you have your Bibles, take, take it and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. 21.5 is our passage this morning. <clears throat> we are in the section in Luke's Gospel that is called the Olivet Discourse. It gets its name from the location. Jesus delivers this speech. He's, uh, he's either standing or sitting on the Mount of Olives, just to the east of Jerusalem, on the other side of the Kidron Valley, as he and his disciples are looking back to the city. And in the distance, they can see the, the temple, Herod's temple. Um, the Olivet Discourse, very important speech in Jesus' life. It gets recorded elsewhere for us in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 24 and 25, and in Mark chapter 13. What stands out about Luke's account of, uh, of this speech I, I would argue that Luke focuses entirely on the events that were to take place 37 years in the future. Um, I think a lot of people believe the Olivet Discourse is, is trying to give us clues to uh, the end of, of the world and the end of human history. They interpret Jesus to be talking here about the destruction on the temple on one hand and his returning at the end of the age to, to uh, you know, come back to earth on the other. But if that's, what, if that's the question the disciples are asking, you know, when are you going to return? That's a very peculiar question given the fact that they don't believe he's going to leave in the first place. You know, none of them are expecting Jesus Christ to leave the earth or, or even to die. None of them are expecting the cross. So I think that at least in Luke's gospel, Jesus is, is not talking about his second coming. He's talking about the events which are 2,000 years for us in the past, the destruction of the temple and the city. And that begs the question, I mean, what do you do with a passage that's just ancient history? How does, you know, how does the Olivet Discourse, how does this, what does it do for us today in the 21st century? That's, we're going to try to answer those questions as we go on. 21.5. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Well, teacher, they asked, when, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, Watch out that you're not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all of this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and put you in prison. And you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm 
and you will win life. It's hard for us to truly imagine what the temple meant to a Jew in the first century. I think of um, an Iowa corn farmer who's never, never left his, the small town in the middle of Iowa all of his life and somehow wins, let's say he wins an all-expenses-paid trip to Rome. And he flies out of some small airfield in, in uh, Iowa, flies all the way into Rome, blindfolded, and he walks into St. Peter's Basilica. They take the blindfold off, and his, he, he's standing in St. Peter's, just seeing the... I mean, his jaw hits the ground. He's never seen anything like it in all of his life. That's what it, what it was what it was like for somebody who grew up, grew up in rural Galilee, a country bumpkin from the northern part of Israel, to walk all the way down on his pilgrimage to Jerusalem and to see Jerusalem with his eyes or with her eyes for the very first time in their lives. It was the most architecturally. They had never seen something so beautiful. And it was said that the temple of Herod, Herod's temple was clad in white marble, the marble was so white, supposedly, when you saw it in, from a distance out on the horizon, it, it looked like there was snow on top of the mountains when you looked there. There was gold, intricate gold um, gilded fixtures inside of the temple. There were astonishing works of art, art and uh, engravings and, and uh, frescoes and, and all of that. It was the most beautiful place. And, and that... The, the, the reason the temple meant so much to them was this was where God came to earth. I mean, forget how beautiful it was. This was the, the meeting place of heaven and earth, the most sacred spot in the universe. And frankly, we do not have any cultural, modern-day cultural equivalent to uh, what it meant for them to lose it. We really don't. If the Statue of Liberty was you know, destroyed sometime later today, that would be a drop in the bucket. If the White House was, was burned to the ground later this afternoon, it wouldn't begin to compare what it was like for them to lose the temple. You know, in, in 9-11, I think it was 2,977 people died. And we lost, effectively, we lost two monuments because the World the Trade Center, the two towers, are really symbols to the rest of the world of Western culture, of Western wealth, of modernity, and, and all of that. Uh, when, when the trade towers, the, the towers fell, there was not two bricks stacked on top of one another afterwards. And 3,000 people died. Friends, when the city of Jerusalem fell, over 1 million Jews died in a country whose population was only 3 million. One-third of all of their countrymen were slaughtered like pigs. When the temple fell, um, historians tells, tell us that there was just a purge of Jews all throughout the Roman Empire. During this time, the historians tell us that uh, 20,000 Jews were killed in Caesarea, 13,000 were killed in Scythopolis, 50,000 in Alexandria, 10,000 in Damascus. When the temple fell, if you read the ancient accounts by the ancient historians like Tacitus, the Roman historian, or Josephus, 
the level of desperation they describe of, of the people during those days is, is horrific, beyond des- description horrific. Can you imagine eating your children to stay alive? Because that's what happened. It was, it was horrible. Then finally, when the, the Romans break through the temple walls, the, the general Titus comes straight into the temple and he sets up the imperial standards of Rome, the, the great poles with the eagles on top of it, and there in the temple of God, on the very altar of God, he offers pagan sacrifices to the emperor of Rome. The abomination that causes desolation, as it's described elsewhere, is finally erected in the middle of the temple of God, and everybody dies. Luke chapter 21 is not uh, an encouraging passage of the Bible. (laughs) Uh, Let's be honest. And the wrath of God is not something we like to talk about. But this is the wrath of God unleashed. God's judging wrath, it had come upon Israel in in previous uh, centuries. In 722 B.C., the Assyrians came and they wiped the people out. In 586 B.C., the Babylonians came and wiped them out. It happens here in 70 A.D. When God's judgment comes on a people, um, it it is final, it is sweeping, it is ferocious, it is something so terrible that it just, it makes you just want to put your hand over your lips and just be silent and cover your eyes and just be silent. It's so terrible. And today, as you know, in Jerusalem, you know, the temple is gone. I mean, there's a, there's the, the walls of the city, a little remnant of the walls, which we call the Wailing Wall, is, is still there. But the temple is gone. No two stones were left on top of one another. The temple mount where the temple used to stand is now the Dome of the Rock, controlled by Muslims. And there are no priests. There are no sacrifices. I just want you to sense the, the absolute finality of the judgment that came upon them. And ask the question, could this happen to us? I promise, I, I didn't, I'm not choosing the sermon uh, today, right after the election. I would have preached the exact same sermon, no matter what happened in Tuesday's election. But can this happen to us? Does God's judgment, does it fall upon nations? What I did is I picked up a book by, it is, his name is Stephen J. Keeler. It is entitled, God's Judgments, Interpreting History and the Christian Faith. And what he basically does, he's, an, he's a Christian historian, and he takes the minority position that you can actually, as a historian, evaluate historical events and reach probable conclusions on whether or not God was judging a nation by virtue of, of those events. And of course, he would be laughed out of pretty much any history department in America for saying that you, you can actually determine that God is judging a people. But um, he makes a very provocative case. And he asked the question, was, was God judging the United States of America in two major events in, in our nation's history? In 1814 and in the, the Civil War. A very interesting look at uh, those two events. He makes appropriate caveats. He says, look, I realize America is not Israel. It's not as though we are in some covenant relationship with God. I realize that. I realize 
that you can't do a one-to-one correlation for every military battle and skirmish and defeat. You can't point to that and say, well, that's always the result of divine retributive judgment. He says, I know all of that, but he goes back to the year 1814. Do you remember from your American history classes? In 1814, the United States Capitol building, the United States White House, most of the city of Washington was burned. It wasn't the Revolutionary War. What war was that? It was the War of 1812. The British came in, and they attack our, our nation's, our, our cultural symbols, right? This is what we stand for. This is the center of our political nation state. And they attack it and they, they burn it to the ground. He, he goes back and he looks at all of the different events that were happening in American history at that time and says, yes, I think it was God's judgment. And what I would add is if 1814 was God's judgment, then it was an awfully mild form of it. Because when God's judgments normally fall upon people, they're so much more severe. Then he goes to the next major event in our country's history, the Civil War, and asks, is is the Civil War God's judgment on the United States? Is it his judgment on us for slavery? He says, yes, it was. But he points out that the, the Civil War wasn't a sifting of the good guy's versus the bad guys, as it's often portrayed. No, the the entire nation was judged in our war. 600,000 soldiers died. Everybody in our nation suffered loss and and heartbreak. And, And Lincoln points this out in his second inaugural address. He said, we read the same Bible, we all prayed to the same God, but the, the war came. The war, kind of like a tidal wave, swept all of us out to sea. That's something I notice about judgments in the Bible is they take everybody with them. It's, it's all of us who get swept in. Quote, what about today? There are many Christian voices which proclaimed that 9-11 was God's judgment on our country. And really, for decades, Christians have been predicting a judgment against America or against the West. Yet things seem to go on smoothly, like normal. People continue to eat and drink, marry and give in marriage. They add to their houses. They expand their portfolios. Everything goes on uh, all the same. But if there is a God who judges on the earth, and there is a God who judges on the earth, we know that this God will not let wickedness flourish forever. Sooner or later, God will come in, in his wrath and vengeance. Isn't that true? And my friends, I've heard so many people, both recently and you know, just at different times, talk pretty flippantly about the judgment of God. You know, I, I almost like they say, like, I hope God judges the United States of America. And to which I reply, No, you don't. No, you don't. Not if Not if Assyria was an indication of a divine judgment. Not of Babylon. Not of the fall of the city of Jerusalem. No, you don't. Because divine wrath is something so terrifying, ferocious, and final that that all of us would be swept out with the tide. 
the image that I have of, uh, I, I just can't imagine what it would be like. I mean, think with me for just a second, what it would be like to be an inhabitant in the city of Jerusalem who looks over the city walls, and there you see, as far as the eye can see, Roman legions garrisoned outside of your city. The walls in the city of Jerusalem at that time were 150 feet tall. It took six months for the siege to to finally succeed. During those six months, the Romans ended up gathering so much wood for firewood, you know, for their camps and for siege works and for crucifying Jews. They crucified so many people, they actually ran out of wood. The Mount of Olives, where Jesus delivers this speech, there were no more trees left on the Mount of Olives when the city fell. The whole land was, was a crucified moonscape. And you, you look over the city walls and you realize, at some point you realize, there is nothing we can do about this. They are going to come in and they are not going to just shoot me in the back of the head and, I, and I, I'm gone. They're, they're going to come in and they're going to slaughter us and they are going to destroy everything that is here And the world as we know it will come to a horrific end. That's what it was like for them. And there was nothing that they could do about it, was there? Again, I I just find the judgment of God terrifying as it's depicted in the Bible. It's not something we like to talk about. I mean, when was the last time you had a conversation with somebody else where you talked about divine wrath? It's not something we like to even think about. But if we're being honest... It's found throughout our Bible. We just can't be Thomas Jefferson and start cutting out pages that we don't like. The other idea I had, well, I think back to 9-11. And I am not saying that 9-11 was definitively God's judgment on the United States. Keeler in his book is intentionally rather coy about the question whether 9-11 was judgment. But I wonder if you've done this before. Maybe I'm just the only morbid one here. But I've imagined myself sitting in one of the towers, sitting at my desk in my office right by the window when I see an airplane beginning to approach. Have you ever done that before? Kind of envision you see an airplane and you know at that moment... The one thing you're not able to do, you're not able to stick your hand out and say, stop. You don't say, stop, I forbid you to come in here. Stop, I forbid you for crashing your plane into into this place and, and, and leveling it to the ground so there are not two bricks left on top of one another. At that point, you you just discover how utterly powerless and impotent you really are. And I think that's what will, if God ever does come in judgment upon a people or on a nation, that, was, that will be what surprises us the most. It's just how utterly powerless we are to affect things. Does that make sense? Well, a couple of, couple of other th- points I'd like to make. And, um, Keeler in his book warns, he warns us about using judgment language against our political opponents. You know, we, he warns us about using judgment language about, against 
our personal enemies. We do this sometimes flippantly. God is going to judge you. Uh, no, I, I certainly hope that he doesn't. Um, Francis Schaeffer, do you remember the, the um, thought experiment that Francis Schaeffer came up with? It was a very interesting one. He said, imagine that God put an invisible tape recorder. He attached it around everybody's neck. And the only thing that tape recorder ever picked up was, was when you would um, tell somebody else how they ought to be living. So as soon as you say the words, uh, you ought, or you should not be, or he, he shouldn't really be, as soon as that happens, click, the tape recorder starts to record. Um, in other words, the tape recorder records your standards for behavior for other people's lives. What Schaefer does in this thought experiment, he says, okay, well, well, imagine if God used that tape recorder on the judgment day. Imagine you stood before the throne of God and he said, I'm really going to be fair. I'm not going to judge you by my standards. I'm not going to judge you by the golden rule, rule or by the Ten Commandments or the Bible or even the example of Jesus Christ. All I'm going to do, I'm going to be really fair, all I'm going to do is judge you by your own standards. And he takes that little invisible tape recorder off of your head and he says, let's just play it and see if you live up to your own standards. Would any of us <laughs> pass that test? If that's how God did the judgment day, there's not a person on the face of the earth who would stand up and pass. How much less are we going to pass the judgment day of the Ten Commandments? The judgment day to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The, the judgment to love your neighbor as yourselves. I think whenever we, we start to talk or think about judgment, we should never, never be flippant um, when we think about it on other people. Because uh, I, I, I fear that it'll just boomerang back on ourselves. And when I, when I consider the sobering reality that, that there will somehow come a time when I have to give an account for my life, an account not only for my, my words, my actions, but my, but my motives. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but it just makes me want to put my hand over my mouth and just be silent. Repent in dust and ashes. And cling to the cross. The, the, the whole topic makes me ever so grateful for the cross of Jesus Christ. For there on the cross, we know that the, the judgment of divine wrath was spent. There on the cross, Jesus was prosecuted as a criminal so that criminals could be pardoned. There on the cross, he was judged in order to free us from the judgment of God. There on the cross, he delivered the definitive blow against evil. Not just the evil outside these walls, but, but the evil, our own evil, was dealt with on the cross. I want you, I want you to remember that, brothers and sisters. Finally, I want to conclude. I guess I have to say something about the election. Um, you know, we have people, we've always had people at All Saints all across the political spectrum. I know that we had people with a clear conscience vote for Clinton, vote for Trump, vote for a third party, abstain from voting altogether. They did that with a clear conscience before the Lord. In fact, to cast a vote different than the one they did probably would have violated their own conscience, which is sin. I mean, I think, weren't all of us this past Tuesday just 
trying to do our best with a, a, the bad hand that we were dealt? I mean, weren't we just trying to do our best with the necessary moral um, trade-offs that are part of a two-party democratic system? I, I, don't, I never met anybody this week who went gleefully to the polls and cast their vote you know, with a big hurrah. We should be very cautious uh, how we judge each other. <laughs> and what binds us together is not our common politics, heaven forbid. It's not our common race. It's not our common income levels. It's n- not any of that of the sort. We come together because you and I are brother and sister beggars at the foot of Jesus' cross. We come together because we've been, we're, we're probably a natural band of enemies. <laughs> but, we, but we've been loved by Jesus Christ. And we're to love one another for Jesus' sake. And what unites us all is not our political party and affiliation, but the fact that we're beggars at the cross who need to be forgiven and, and ought to be humbled at the feet of the cross that, w- that we should receive mercy and not judgment. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Will ju- God's judgment come on America 300 years from now? 30 days from now? Will it come upon the church? I don't know. But I, what I do know is that we are to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That was Paul's words in a very politically tumultuous first century Ephesians chapter 4, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and there's one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of of all, who is over all, through all, and and in all. Um, God, in this this political season, give us grace to, to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, and to, to forgive one another whatever grievances we have with each other, and, and especially to cling to the cross of Jesus Christ. That is, the cross is our only hope. Amen? Amen.